Kulturhuset Stadsteatern och internationell författarscen. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast, konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i Allkonsthuset vid Sägels torg. Och det är dags för er att få möta Adania Schibli i samtal med Andreas Norman. Hello, sorry, I brought my jacket. I don't know how cold is it here, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, lovely to have you here. Thank you. In, uh, autumn, Stockholm. And uh, it strikes me also that, uh, for me at least, this is the first um, talk I have with a colleague physically, like this. Sitting in the same room with with uh, with the audience, it's uh, it's been a quite a strange year and a half, and uh, I mean we're all been affected by it. I, I wonder how how has the pandemic and the social distancing and all the restrictions that has been in place how is, has it affected you it's as a writer? A present. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's probably. Um you know, with all the difficulties it created for everybody and the uh, interruption into life and pressure and uh, even the solitary conditions that many people were not ready for. But uh, unfortunately for writing, this is what you really hope for, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yes, the... I, I was hoping that the whole world would become writers. So this is <laughs> everyone in quarantine yes. writing, yes. <laughs> focusing on language. Yes, <laughs> yes it's interesting also the um, the fact of loneliness because I think this is a time that uh, a lot of people experience loneliness probably and solitude, which uh, you know in in writing this is something you're already introduced to. At early stage in your life, I mean, I know this—the distance from others—it it becomes uh, almost uh, how do you say a force that is there that suddenly it pulls you away. Mm. Not it's like you're socially distant, but you know that you cannot be in a, together and move together, there's suddenly almost a gap opens up. Uh, and you choose this uh, position, or this position attracts you, and you're suddenly away on the margins. And I think the margins really were a place you find yourself isolated and, and distanced from everything else is, is an important position, mm-hmm. for me at least, and not to be in the center. I mean. Unfortunately, we're here, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sitting here, but it's not the place I, I thrive on. It's not, uh, I think, and, and going into the world from a position of marginality and on the side and from a distance is one that it's almost a new entry to life and opens up to uh, a world that is one that I think accommodates the weak and the fragile. And that, yeah, the powerless, let's say. Mm. So suddenly the word and the pandemic became that word. Yeah. And you could see, you know, in Arabic, there's um, 
a term in grammar which I feel very attracted to. It's called al-muthanna. It, it is not uh, they, it is the two. And these two can only exist in the margins. And I remember actually in these, uh, during the, the pandemic, uh, I really had a lot of these moments of the two because the restrictions were that you can be with one other person. And this is like al -Muthanna. I don't know how to say it in Arabic. I mean, I think Jonathan must help us. <laughs> dual, the dual, yeah. It's, it's a grammatical form that doesn't really exist in other languages. I heard Hungarian has it. Uh, and it's a space that actually gender disappears. It, uh, Arabic language is very gendered. You have a lot of female and male, and suddenly with this, the dual, gender disappears, class disappears, the difference between you and the other disappears, and there's a whole kind of space of intimacy that opens up between you and the other, where you cannot exist without the other. And it's a very beautiful space, and I think, I know it's not trying to romanticize this pandemic, but it allowed, in a way, a certain togetherness on the margins and not this constant movement of all of us, the pressure we are underneath. And sometimes we are in groups, but we don't have this intimate connection as well within the group. Mm. Yeah. When, when you say uh, being on the margin, uh, it reminds me of another book that you've written. Uh, in English, the title is Touch. Uh, it was translated into English in 2010, uh, where there is a girl who, uh, through her senses, intensively, from the margins, watch uh, things going on. And also that all the, sort of, what we would say, events, things happening, like a brother who dies, uh, a, a person committing suicide, all that is sort of, on the fringes of vision or the, on the fringes of hearing. And instead she focuses on, or the, and, the, and the language and the, the sort of narrative focuses very much on the senses, on movement or the lack of movement, on sound or silence, on light and color and darkness. Maybe there's also this, um, to, to have this intense focus gives a certain integrity to, to a person, uh, to not be invaded by events and, and, uh, and things, politics outside, but trying to keep sort of one's senses clear. Yeah, and it's also maybe it's a question of position, like, uh, uh, I mean, how we perceive things. We can never perceive of something in a complete picture. I think this is something that is being enforced and enforced from a a clear vision that we normally don't have. It, it is the most actually fictional, you know, this, uh, I think, uh, how the narrative is presented about life or whatever, if there's a situation of war or death or, uh, uh, I mean, how we can perceive that. Uh, and this death probably touches uh, each one's life, but it's something that is hard to grasp. Sometimes we are giving almost a formula how we should relate to it, uh, 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 almost a narrative. But if we don't f follow that and we follow a certain almost way of exploring our relationship with things, and we're talking about literature, so we're talking about the words, how we can approach 
this within language, uh, how we can, this fragmentation of not understanding. I mean, of course, death is, is an experience we can never grasp. We put it in a word, but is it only this word or... And then it becomes the meaning of the word. Is it only about the meaning of the word? And what about our relationship to these meanings, to these emotions? And I think the margin allows us to explore um, language or feelings or emotions not based on this kind of collective, as if the collective want to tell us this is. And of course, it, it helps. You know, when in a case of death, we have the funeral as a set, like we kind of mourn together and we have a moment of co collectiveness to mourn together uh, and uh, but it's it is something that is almost a ceremonial and i don't deny it it's important to be there but what else and i think we should always remember there are many different possibilities and i think the margin just reminds us it's not like the margin as opposed to the center but the margin and the center and all these different ways that they can be from the margin to the center. So there are endless ways because the margin can be so many different points. And uh, that's one exploration of this girl, how she does it. And for me, you know, this is as a reader, I'm not speaking as a writer now. When I read a text, it is also... You know, the experience of reading, we read also, the act of reading is so much lonely. It's not only writing is, is a lonely uh, uh, craft, but also reading is a very lonely craft. And uh, it happens, it needs the silence, it needs the quietness, it needs, it takes place in the margin. And I think this is the power of these words. They have so much intensity there, but this intensity doesn't demand that you are in the center. It's enough that you are somewhere hidden on the side, and in that sense, it's, it's uh, the least intrusive, I think, craft. And it suits mm. loners. That's mm. why I think it's good for... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's also clear when being a reader of your work that you are in very much listening to the language as such. Uh, when reading, I, I, I get this very strong sense that I start to not only read what would you call a story, but also listen to certain syntax and certain way of uh, putting words together. Yeah. Um, and I think that is uh, something that also um, sort of makes your writing slightly different from sort of and other Arabic writers, Arabic-speaking uh, writers, uh, focusing more on clearly, explicitly on issues or on storytelling. But, but here is also a strong sense of focus on the formal structure of language in itself. Yeah, maybe they are, su they are successful, I'm not. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, this is the story about storytelling, because I was always... Uh, you know, my mother doesn't read and write. She never read and, and, or uh, was able to write. I mean, I tried to teach her, but she's like, okay. She was allowing me to teach her, but she, I got bored. I mean, she was telling me, okay, you want to teach me reading and writing, please? But then it becomes like, no, it's boring actually to teach somebody. But what she did, I mean, and we had lots of books at home. So my father was reading a lot and we were all reading a lot and we loved these books. 
But sometimes we didn't have electricity at home. So there was no electricity and we couldn't read. And we were all around my mother because my mother, she was the best storyteller. And you know, it's like, yes, she couldn't read, but she, if, even if there was electricity, if we're reading Tolstoy and my mom says, I'm gonna tell you a story, like Tolstoy by, my mom is there. <laughs> and she's fascinating. And, and for me, I was like really, kind of uh, fascinated because uh, there is something that she was not very social. She's like on the minimal scale of being social. But sometimes she had these friends coming and, and I really wanted to hear how their stories develop. Uh, they would like from the hello to the bye, there's all these stories and, and movement and, and excitement that happens. And I was like, I really want, and they always never allowed me because it's their private conversations, they, they chased me, I tried to hide behind the sofa, behind the curtains, but they always discovered me. And I think this kind of um, failure of being a storyteller is, uh, is what brought me to writing. Because in writing, you know, what happens in writing? In a story, the minute that you tell the story, it is like the words already there, you cannot delete them. But with writing, you just you know, it took me 12 years to write this, so I was deleting, you know, like, no, this comma is not right. Uh, this dot, no, should be somewhere else. When you speak, it's, it's no possibility. It's, it's a, something beyond your, uh, it's, it's like hearing. You know, I'm speaking, it's already it's with the listener. It's, it's uh, you know, with the act of hearing, there's something else. With, so you cannot delete in speaking, but you can do that. And uh, so, you know, being not a good storyteller, so I, can, I might as well write, and I write the stories that I cannot write, <laughs> you know, that, that cannot be stories. <laughs> and yet you have written a uh, fantastic novel, uh, Minor Detail. Uh, I mean, I would say it has a story, a very strong Yeah, but story. I was making fun of the people yeah, who were making a story. I was uh, not, <laughs> it was not, you know, I didn't want to write a story. I wanted to try to write a story to say I will not write a story anymore. Yeah. So that's, I think this is the only novel that uh, probably, like, I will have the next novel. Nobody will publish. Nobody will read, actually. <laughs> so I, I will make sure that this happens. <laughs> I will surely read it. <laughs> I make sure of that. Um, if you look back, like, well, in, to the beginning of, of, uh, of your pro writing process, 12-something years ago, uh, how did the idea to this novel, A Minor Detail, uh, develop for you? Well, there are two uh, starts. The one start, it really started with... Um, uh, suddenly losing the ability to speak. Mm. Uh, actually, in the novel, there's a, a howl of a dog. And for me, this howl is about where words are no longer there. That's it. This is beyond the limit of language or comprehensible language or meaning. And what happens if a human howls? Or we start barking. Uh, and that was my emotion at that moment, like when language is empty. Uh, or you don't trust it, you don't trust the, the content or the fact that what you say will be perceived with a meaning. And I would say it's, it's a strange relation with language that you lose 
trust with something you love so much. Uh, because I'm, I'm really in love with language. Uh, I'm happy. Arabic language, not any language. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but there is a moment that you feel deep inside you, this Arabic language is not there for you anymore. Uh, and I think this, that was the, the unconscious moment when I started writing the novel, realizing this moment. I actually remember it when it happened with the day, uh, with the, that barking is what the only language possible now. And really, you know, with the novel, so what goes, what if all language disappears and we only have a dog barking or howling through history mm. as a witness? What does this howl mean? And, and these questions come like, how do you lose trust in language? I mean, of course you love language, but it's strange love as well, because it's, you know that you failed in language many times, you know? I remember like, <laughs> there's a, a personal story, you know, with the failure of language, because I had my sister and we were fighting. She was like four years older than me. And, and she was so good in language that, you know, we, we fight. she really starts the fight. Honestly, I'm like being objective. And suddenly when my parents say what happened, she turns it into something completely different. I'm like, wow, how is this possible? <laughs> and then I'm speechless and my parents say, okay, what do you have to say? But I'm just thinking about her story. How did she make that? And uh, then they ah, you don't have any words. So you, you are, you know, because you don't defend yourself, uh, you, you started the problem. And then I get punished and she's like, really, I see her smile, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Storytelling as manipulation in yeah. some way. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like for me, because as a kid, actually, you never understand the act of storytelling because for you, language, how you are taught, this is that and so on. Of course, you have imagination, but it's, uh, the function of language is there as if, uh, yeah, a glass, a table, but this cannot suddenly be a chair. But then the art of my sister, who's like, yeah, and this happens, a complete imagination. And I think I was fascinated by that. And, and this is like, you know, when you're fascinated by a storyteller and you cannot tell your own story, this is like a moment of collapse because you know that. Uh, and this continues because I, it started to say, okay, I am actually fascinated. I would like to see how she changes the story. And later we would discuss it. I mean, we would discuss like, why did you say that you're lying? I say like, yeah, I could. And, and she was never ashamed of it <laughs> because you know, the moment that my parents disappeared, it's, it's a, she goes back to the fact that she won. And actually the sister is now a photographer. <laughs> She's not a writer. <laughs> you are. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and maybe that's interesting because in a way, so um, you think, there is a language that is not being able to be articulated. And there is a language of somebody who comes and presents the story so perfectly that you definitely are the, the culprit, you are the criminal. And you grow in the context of Palestine and this grows with you. I mean, you see their presentations of the Israeli government with all their, you know, high-tech completely PhD, Deleuze, Foucault, terminology. And you have like a, a Palestinian farmer that's like, you know, with hardly this kind of 
ability to articulate. And for me, I, w I started to be more attracted to those who don't articulate things. Mm -hmm. I, it's almost, you love language, but you, you know, it's not like language betrays you, but you know, there's something different. It's not about you using language, because it's not about using it to tell your story, but about living with it and knowing that it's there for you. And you know, okay, my words in this case would be different, but maybe this is the time that I cannot share them. And maybe they should be in, in silence. And then writing comes and you can do everything in silence. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the has strong political connotations to, to not be able to tell your story and, and, and to have to listen to the people in power telling the story, telling your story, telling everyone's story. Yeah. Um, and this politics starts when you're a kid, actually, because it's not like we're living this kind of ideal life and suddenly we reach politics. Politics starts with the games, and you see the games with, with children, between children that are so cruel sometimes, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so um, maybe not everyone in the audience is familiar with the, with the novel, so I, I could try attempt to, to, read, it uh, to, to <laughs> read it loud now, now, now I want to, uh, but i try to summarize it. Um, I'll, I'll try to do it as a story, even though <laughs> there are many ways to summarize a book like this, but that, that is one way. Um, so basically, it's a novel structured in two parts, um, equally long. Um, the first part is played out in um, the summer of 1949, uh, in the area uh, close to the Egyptian border, in what in Western terms would call, be called the, the Negev uh, desert. And there is a military camp, and there is an officer in the head of this camp, and they are on the mission to basically kill or eradicate Arabs in the area, to secure the area. And one day they encounter a family, and the family is killed by the soldiers, except one girl who is then taken to the camp. Uh, and she is then humiliated, uh, eventually raped and murdered in the desert. And then the second part is uh, a narrative of a woman in Ramallah who finds out about this event, this horrific event. Uh, and realizes that it took place exactly 25 years before she was born. And to her, that detail, that minor detail, that connection, sort of triggers her interest, and she tries to, she wants all of a sudden to gather information to understand uh, more about this event. And, um, she does so going on a journey uh, across the, into Israeli territory, etc. And it has some um, uh, tragic consequences. Uh, so that is, that is the story, <laughs> if I may say so. Um, but the, the book is so much more. It is also a very much a brilliant formal execution of language, uh, and this, this way of writing being very precise with the sensory impressions, with the movements, sometimes the movements of the body, 
of the officer, how he moves back and forth, how he walks into the desert. How did that develop for for you? How how did you come to to the point of writing in this style, if I may say so? It's it's a strange process with writing because it's not something that uh, happens in a very uh, conscious pre-writing moment. It really evolves as it happens. With uh, as I said, it's an, really an exercise in trying to speak the language of power by those who don't speak it. And at the same time, it's also an exercise to reach areas in ourselves where we also capable of committing naturally uh, acts that cause pain to others. Because we are not remote from that as human beings. And this character, actually, it grew, it demanded its own words. It demanded everything. I, it's nothing, you know, each time I wanted to be faster than this character or over it, it didn't work. It's a, it knew what it is. It was almost like forming and moving and going in its own way. And I, I was complete passive. I don't know how to describe it. I know it's, it might sound spooky when somebody hears it, but almost you, as you write, you have no role. You become like nothing. You're almost like, uh, I don't know. Uh, you really feel your existence becomes into nothing. You, you lose the sense of your body or who you are, and there's only the presence of the words. Uh, it's, it's not, yeah, it's, uh, it's like a servant, like, like a plate, like, I don't know how to describe it. So this character was taking its shape on its own without my interference. And, it, and it, I think really like the role of somebody who's writing, and because there's so many influences, you know, suddenly uh, there is language everywhere, there's these influences, there's this almost sometimes painting, there's moments, and they come all crystallized, demanded by this character. It's almost like this character is a magnet that there's so many distant things. I mean, I like now, I don't. I didn't read the book, but I, when I can think or remember this character, its face came from a, a specific place. I, it came from a specific moment that it demanded that. And in that sense, you are not so much. I will do that. It's not a very conscious um, act. And and that's why sometimes I think it's. Uh, I would like to find another job because it's too difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like uh, it's something that sometimes uh, with the process I really wait for uh, I feel the word I feel it I I I almost hear the sound but this word doesn't appear and you have just really to wait it's almost like a hunter that if you make any movement wrong movement or if somebody tells you good morning like why do you tell me good morning like you know the deer is gonna run away now and it's like uh, so you need this complete isolation because it's almost this is the moment that it comes to you and you need this 
trust, and it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I don't think that we, and that's why sometimes I think it's not about me, a writer, I am writing, because it is something that you are not so much present in that. I know it's, it's a bit weird to say that, and I'm confessing the weirdness of that, <laughs> so please <laughs> forgive me. I, I, think, I think good writers have always a di great difficulty to write, <laughs> that's, uh, that's uh, something that is, I mean, if you take writing lightly, then, then usually something is amiss. Uh, yeah, it's the only profession that the more you do it, the worse you become with it, you know? <laughs> really, because at the beginning when you do it, it's like easy and you're, and then with time, you're so bad and worse and worse and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should hear some part of... The of bad stuff. Yeah, the bad stuff <laughs> <laughs> of, of, of your of a section from, from the book. Okay. Um, if I should introduce it, it's, it's, a, it's a situation where uh, the girl has been captured, she's in the camp, and um, uh, she's, um, yeah, she, she's, in the, she's in the camp, and uh, she's basically in the view of the Israeli soldiers outside language. They don't understand her. So please, maybe, if you begin with, if, would you like to read in Arabic, and then the section, and then I read in Swedish? Yeah, w or would you like to read the section, and then I am for the introduction of the... Yeah, 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 let's yeah. do it like, like okay. that, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I read it in the Swedish translation, the, the excellent Swedish translation, and then, um, uh, we'll, then, then we will read in Arabic um, the, the continuing section where they open up a party um, and have a feast in stark contrast to the misery of this girl. So first, the Swedish section, and then uh, in it, yeah. the, the, the an, an continued section in Arabic. Okay. I have to get my glasses, sorry. I'm of that age now. <laughs> okay. Hunden skällde fortfarande när han kom fram till lägret. Han gick direkt till det andra skjulet och skällandet tilltog ännu mer när han närmade sig. Han vände sig till soldaten som höll vakt och frågade om allt vad som det skulle. Och vakten svarade ja. Plötsligt flög dörren till skjulet upp och flickan kom ut. Hon grät och spottade ur sig obegripliga bitar av ord som flöt ihop med hundens åbrutna skällande. Då, efter solnedgången, Strax innan mörkret föll helt och hållet, när hennes mun slungade ut ord på ett språk som var främmande för dem, blev hon återigen en främling, hur mycket hon än såg ut att vara som de andra soldaterna i lägret. Till höger om skjulet stod vakten kvar och tittade ner i sanden för att slippa möta blicken från besvälet som oberört skakade på huvudet. Thank you. أمر ذلك المساء بتجهيز وجبة احتفالية بمناسبة نجاح جولتهم الصباحية بعد جولات عدة لم يثمر البحث خلالها عن شيء وفور أن جلس آخر جندي إلى مائدة العشاء في تمام الساعة الثامنة مساء وقف هو وحيا جمع الجنود ثم باشر بيشيد بدورهم في الدفاع عن المنطقة وحمايتها فالجنوب لا يزال في خطر وعلينا أن نفعل كل ما في وسعنا للصمود والبقاء فيه Thank you. When I when I read your novel, um, 
and also when I listen to you, you, you talking about um, catching the words like a deer, um, I sense that you also move very closely to silence. That silence, that words stand out against the background of, of silence. But I'm thinking of different silences, the, the silence of this girl in the novel is, is a punishment and she's, is dehumanizing. Whereas the writing of your novel is in a way a silence created, uh, a voluntary silence between the words and a silence of, of the words not being chosen. Uh, and also perhaps a silence that can be a breathing space. Yeah, or can be a threatening space, or can be an intimidating space. It's it's very interesting what silence. I mean, it's it's really that silence that suddenly has so many different meanings. Uh, it has the intimacy. It has the the forgiveness. Let's say of all the absences and the brokenness and what you cannot articulate, it's there, it, it is encompassing, but it also can be punishing in a, in a way that when you are silenced and when somebody is facing you with silence. Uh, and I think with this book probably there is the many explorations of the meaning of the silence, his silence, the the officer, the silence of the girl, the silence of the character. And you know, in life, in, in Palestine, you grow into silence. There is a lot of silence uh, because you, it is the silence that will save you. Mm -hmm. uh, as if, uh, you know, it's very interesting, like, um, you know, the story of Shahrazad talking about storytellers. Shahrazad, role in 1001 Nights was always to tell a story to be saved, that she is not killed. But in the context of Palestine, as if you should never tell the story, you should always be in silence of what happened. Also in the world, it's not only between your parents, like our parents didn't tell us what happened in the war, what experience. I will not tell my son what's happening. And now I understand because at a certain stage I was angry at my uh, parents to that, you know, they cannot. And it's like, you know, as if you're betraying language, how can, you know, do that? But then you know that actually within the silence you grew, it grows, it, you grew up also to be sensitive that in, in a different way. And, and not to be a victimizer. You are not claiming, you know, in the Bible we have the example of God calling Adam and Adam is naming things, naming and saying and articulating is an act of power. But I also see now this is the silence that our parents kind of, uh, that we were as kids and angry, you know, because anyway, as a kid, you want to be angry at your parents for everything. If they said something, you're angry. If they didn't say you're angry, you just have to be angry. But now with my son, I see that I, I will not tell him. I cannot tell him. How can you tell of this? 
Because it's also, you're almost kind of sharing with your kids how you don't trust humanity, what a human being can do. And you don't want that, you want to delay that, and you want to let a possibility of a different uh, exploration within the silence. Maybe they will discover freedom within the silence or imagination, because also it allowed us a lot of imagination. The minute that somebody doesn't say, what is this, you can always think it being many different possibilities. And yeah, it's, uh, you grow into that and, and you eventually accept this is part of your being. It's not only language, but silence. And I think you really, like for me, silence, I, I, I feel its importance in music. You know, it's, it's fascinating because there it composes a lot. Uh, and uh, it, it almost sculptures the sound. And it can also sculpture and form literature. Not narrative, but also even the non-classical form of narrative. And for me, I'm really interested what type of literature, what type of form, what type of novel, if we follow the fragility of language in a context of Palestine. For me, it's not the story that I'm telling about Palestine, but what Palestine can form with literature as an experience, mm. where it, not everything you will say, and you will say, this went and here, but you are born into complete silence. Mm of what happened, nothing. So what kind of literature can be there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but because the, the, uh, I'm thinking of the woman in the, in the second part of the novel. She is, in a way, also trying to uncover uh, something that has been silent for, for many years. I mean, she basically tries to uh, take away the lid of silence that has been put on on this event by uh, the, the the people in power, and 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 she, I mean, as you write, I quote, "This type of investigation is completely beyond my ability." She says, uh, "She fails in her, in her investigation in a tragic way, but she really tries," and I think maybe this attempt. Maybe that is also very much of what literature is about. Yeah, it's, it's the attempt also to explore when you don't tell a story, when you are not a storyteller. Are you deleted from life? You don't have a place anymore if you cannot tell your story? Or still there is some space that can accommodate this fragility, can accommodate this inability? Because, you know, imagine this world that is based on power and, uh, and, and intolerance of fragility and weakness. It's, it's a monstrous world, mm. I think. Mm. Uh. Mm. Um, I mean, it, the, 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 the woman in, in, the, in, in the story, she also has a very quite, quite unusual sort of focus for her investigation. It's, uh, it, it is this minor detail that there is a connection between uh, the event and her birthday. Um, and I'm thinking also that that it's just uh, uh, something that came to my mind, but uh, it's, it's perhaps also uh, a, a traumatized person's attempt to connect things, to bring things in order, uh, and, and to find a language, an order in language, and in, 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 in how to understand reality 
uh, but from a traumatized position. Yeah, and then what kind of world will you create at the end? Mm. You know, I, it's a, it's, and also, yeah, I mean, uh, which tools you will use? Is it language? But language you see the powerful is using to construct a narrative that you are struggling with. It's not, it's not you. And you need uh, always to negate it or oppose it or jump over it. And I think it's, it's really almost like the, the, the shouts of, of, of an animal. I think this is an exploration that is, is more sincere than language. Because this is the, the moment that language has been so much abused to tell and to force a narrative and, and to convince and to create a relation between narrative and reality. And I think this is very important for me. I never want this book to be about Palestine or relating to Palestine. No, it's not. It is a book relating to a book, literature relating to literature. Because if you do that, you say, I am going to write, you are just going in the steps of those who say, I'm going to form the narrative, and this narrative is the truth. Mm. And this is exactly you repeating an act that have been, you know the consequences of that on, on you, on your being, on your uh, sensitivity, in your psyche, in your dignity as a human being. Mm. And it's... Uh, it's not the path that you want to follow. Mm, I understand. And that's for me why it's important also to think sometimes what kind of literature in this case can come up from those who are fragile mm. and not from this perspective of, I mean, I love, I love classical literature. I mean, Tolstoy is my, you know, dear, and, and I'm fascinated. And, uh, but there is even in, in the writing of Tolstoy, there is this moment that almost, okay, there is the classical narrative, but we will show you it's only a narrative. And suddenly there's something minor, something small that uh, betrays this is literature. This is not reality. Mm. And, uh, and that's why how, how to keep within that, you know? Mm. And, and it's not like to insist, but to create also different uh, ways of relating to language for us to remember that it's not only about us there defending or saying the truth is mine or this is, uh, we need to depart from that, mm. I think, mm. not if we are suffering from that. Yeah, not taking part of the that power play or that play. Yes, that we are suffering from, mm. you know? Yeah, because I mean the situation for people living in Palestine is very real, it's a, it's a situation of, of fear and oppression and, and, uh, and, and I can understand that that language and writing is can be a free zone, uh, free from sort of the the rhetoric of of, of power and, and 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 not sort of just engaging with that kind of language, but creating a free zone. Uh, yeah, and you see it. I mean, I, I just give you an example with with the press and this uh, that when a writer becomes, you know, we we've been speaking and um, with. Uh, Johannes, the publisher, like uh, uh, if I suddenly will become the representative of Palestine. Mm -hmm. And first of all, if somebody would trust me as a representative of Palestine, welcome, <laughs> because I'm the worst representative. Uh, but it's also this kind of almost doubling the act of pain, you know? Uh, I see it uh, like when somebody is uh, undergoing a loss and, and suddenly this person is going through the last that they need again to tell others about it. 
It's like repeating this uh, and then again and again that you become almost like a, uh, it's like a mantra and hysterical and, and you lose yourself in the process. Mm. You become, it's about the other and it's never like, okay, uh, it, it's, it's almost like degrades you in a level like only you exist in the relation of the other recognize your pain. If you experience the pain, your pain is nothing. It's only of those who in power got convinced of your pain, then your pain exists. And this is the most horrific. It's like the doubling of pain. Imagine like you have pain and you need to convince others of your pain. Like, no, it's really hurting. Oh, no, okay. But, and then you become even a caricature of yourself. So there's all these layers with, uh, with kind of representation of, no, it's also your pain is a bit too boring. It has been going on for a long time. And yeah, like, can you find a solution quickly? Yes. <laughs> mm. It's like, yeah, please. <laughs> like, 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 the, like the dog in the, in, the, in the novel, you have to howl in an interesting way. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sort of being dehumanized, being outside yes. the, the language yeah. that is yeah. actually sort of uh, a language of dignity. Yeah. Uh, and this is not your language, it's not your choice. So it's not about the content of the words because nobody cares. It's a, they care how they receive your words and then judge your words. And this is, you know, writing is completely different. Writing or literature, how I perceive it as, as a person who reads, I'm not talking, it's like the space of generosity. You know, you have a text and somebody wrote it. It's, you know, going back to this word of Al-Muthanna, this almost intimate space between this person who wrote the text and you who is reading the text. It's the most intimate. It's like you take these words and they come to you and they touch you in ways that you yourself you cannot uh, explore. And I think this is the, the, the fascinating thing about art and about literature that creates almost an equal. The reading and the writing there, no one is over. I, how many times we read the text and we think, oh, it's ours. The fact that we're reading it, it becomes ours. And, you know, when writing it, a text, you know, it's not mine. And it's, it's something within that. It's uh, this relation between the two. And it's not mine that, you know, we are here. It's not where is me and where is you in this space. It is the two of us. And I think writing and, and, and reading creates this relation. Yeah. And, and writing as a as a hopeful gesture and, and reading as a liberation in a way uh, to, to or writing as a masochist <laughs> gesture <laughs> <laughs> and reading as yeah. a, as an additional masochist okay. <laughs> <laughs> well sh should we perhaps uh, uh, listen a little bit to to the, the the novel in the second part this this woman she is um, trying to find information and knowledge about what this event was, and um, she has to travel across Israeli territory, which she seldom does. And that in itself sort of confronts her with a very uh, concrete, practical problems uh, and fears. Uh, so in order to gain knowledge, to go beyond an official silence, she has to go across several barriers. Um, would you like to read uh, the, in Arabic a piece of, of, of that, where she... I wouldn't like, but I have to, I think. She's an author. Anyway, this is, this is where, where um, uh, uh, the character is 
um, thinking about how to go from area one to area D, where she seldom have, has, has visited and or, or never been to. Yeah. I'll just read a little bit. موقع الحادثة والمتاحف والأرشيفات التي يوثقها جميعها تقع بحسب تقسيم الجيش للبلاد في أماكن هي خارج نطاق منطقة جيم وأبعد منها بكثير ليس بعيدا من الحدود مع مصر بينما أطول رحلة يمكنني الإتيان عليها ببطاقة الخضراء التي تعلن بأنني من منطقة ألف هي من بيتي العمل الجديد مع أنه قانونيا يمكن لأي فرد من منطقة ألف الذهاب إلى منطقة باء إن لم يكن هنالك أسباب سياسية وعسكرية استثنائية تحول دون ذلك لكن لكثرتها باتت هذه الأسباب الاستثنائية القاعدة بحيث لم يعد يخطر ببال كثير ممن هم من منطقة ألف الموصول إلى منطقة باء Så ska farbror Ingmar försöka läsa detta. Platsen där det hände, liksom museen och arkiven som dokumenterat händelsen, ligger samtliga utanför område C enligt militärens indelning av landet och en bra bit utanför, inte långt från gränsen mot Egypten. Den längsta resa jag kan företa mig med mitt gröna ID-kort som intygar att jag kommer från område A är den från min bostad till mitt nya jobb. Rent juridiskt är det möjligt för alla från område A att resa till område B om det inte föreligger exceptionella omständigheter av politisk eller militär art som förhindrar det. Men de exceptionella omständigheterna är så frekventa att de har blivit normaltillståndet. Och nu för tiden är det inte många från område A som skulle komma på tanken att åka till område B. Själv har jag inte färdat så långt som till checkpointen vid Kalandia som utgör gränsen mellan område A och område B på flera år. Så hur skulle jag kunna få för mig att åka till ett ställe som är så långt bort att det nästan ligger i område D? Inte ens invånarna i område B får göra det. Och knappast de i område C heller. Ens om de kommer från Jerusalem. Eftersom hela deras existens förvandlas till en säkerhetsrisk i samma ögonblick som de yttrar ett ord på arabiska utanför sina hemmakvarter. Samtidigt är det förstås tillåtet för dem, liksom för invånarna i område B, att besöka område A, vilket de ofta gör. Och ibland bosätter de sig där, trots att området mer och mer börjar likna ett fängelse. På mitt nya jobb exempelvis finns det, förutom sådana som liksom jag kommer från område A, en hel del kollegor från de områdena, verkligt trevliga människor. Jag anförtror en av dem, en kvinnlig kollega från område C från Jerusalem, att jag behöver åka till hennes område eller lite längre bort än så i ett privat ärende. Det är inte ovanligt att folk från område A behöver åka till område C i privata ärenden på samma sätt som folk från område C behöver åka till område A i privata ärenden. När min kollega får höra det erbjuder hon mig att låna hennes blå ID-kort. Vi är ju ändå alla syskon i slutändan och ser likadana ut, åtminstone för soldaterna vid vägspärrarna. 
Dessutom brukar de inte undersöka kvinnliga resenärer särskilt noga. Så det är ingen risk att de lägger märke till skillnaden mellan fotot på hennes ID-kort och mig. Det är knappt de bryr sig om att titta på folk som står i kön till checkpointen eftersom de hyser sådant förakt för dem. Dessutom ser människorna på bilderna på ID-korten som kan vara tagna när de nyss har fyllt 16 ofta annorlunda ut än i verkligheten. På riktigt. Så jag kan hur som helst använda mig av hennes ID-kort, utföra mitt ärende och sedan återställa kortet till henne när vi kommer tillbaka till jobbet i början av nästa vecka. Det är alls ingen bråska. Hon har tänkt tillbringa helgen i Ramallah tillsammans med några vänner. Om jag blir upptäckt kommer jag förstås att säga att jag stal ID-kortet ur hennes handväska så att jag inte trasslar in henne i det här. Men under alla omständigheter måste jag vara försiktig och undvika att förhasta mig. Jag ska verkligen anstränga mig allt jag kan. Yeah. So fear is a very real thing uh, for this woman and for a lot of people living in uh, in Ramallah and similar uh, territories. I mean, she's trying to navigate uh, her everyday life and uh, uh, also ensure, uh, as you write in, in, in the novel, not to uh, cross any borders. I mean, also social borders and beha- behavioral borders. She's trying to control her own behavior, not to offend anyone, or especially not an Israeli soldier. Um, I'm thinking in this this situation, it's it's so fragmented, it's it's uh, and it's so locked in in many ways. Uh, is it possible for anyone to to write and to fantasize in in such a situation? Well, <laughs> I hope so. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, it's not actually. A hope. It it is almost a necessity. It's uh, eventually what you know. Of course, you have in, in reality all the the humiliation. But then, with these words, with this writing, with art in general, just a little bit twist of things, and like you create a whole imaginative world that one. It's not about control, and it's not about uh, replacing this world you write of the real. It's not like you're fascistic, I want this in place of that. But it's complete openness, another possibility. Because it's, it is, what are these borders? What are these fragmentations? It's about eliminating any possibility. This is the condition. And then, you know, just like taking a pen and a paper, or you completely open to endless possibilities. And it's okay to be on the level of imagination. Uh, because at least in this, this is the, and it's very interesting, you know, uh, with, with the space of the body or the mind or silence. Because of course you can be silenced, but you can also within the silence have a whole endless, infinite uh, imaginations and world that they can, nobody can reach them. Mm. And, and it's nobody can prevent them. 
it becomes like you almost practice your freedom within that level. It's not you're escaping, but you are exploring something that can never be limited. Mm. And nobody yeah. can limit. You once said that, uh, if I, I, I don't know if I quote you exactly, but um, that the oppressor wants to destroy you, your wish to live, uh, and you neut neutralize it by acting af as if it's normal. Because basically, you know, this is, uh, I love martial arts. <laughs> I really love martial arts. <laughs> it's, uh, and in martial arts, there is Aikido, especially, which is built on uh, how, because, you know, how you give somebody power. There's a, a two different forms of resistance. We're always like taught as if there's one form of resistance. And I think uh, it's interesting to explore different forms of resistances. Because if somebody tries to hit you and you hold your hand like this strong, the impact is very strong. But if somebody hits you and your hand goes around and moves, and this is the, the, in Aikido. What for me, Aikido does it in terms of, of uh, martial arts and, and practicing in the body, how you can do it also mentally. When somebody tries to push you on a corner and then, okay, you push me, but I'm going to move somewhere else. Somewhere that you didn't actually expect me there and you will not find me there because you were focusing on here, not there. And uh, if somebody, you know, wants to destroy your body, if you are subjected to these endless checkpoints and humiliations and you disconnect your body, but you are there in your mind where, and if it affects your mind, definitely it affects your mind, but also, it, it doesn't, it cannot only control it. And, and this is, you claim almost an, an agency on where you go with that. Uh, and, and that's why I think writing and literature and, and art is very essential. You see in, in, the, in the last, I think, uh, the last 20 years, 30 years with the conditions. I mean, it's horrific. It's, it's not something that is, uh, it, it, for me, it's, it's almost like you cannot comprehend how this is happening and how the, the human being can be able to do that. But for instance, in Gaza and, and, the, and the, the art that is being, the art scene, the literature, the writing, the generosity, you know, it's, it's like the most interesting uh, visual arts and uh, filmmaking and literature is taking place in, in Gaza. And uh, for instance, of a literary magazine, there's a literary magazine called 28 that is being published in Gaza. It's the only Palestinian magazine and it's happening in Gaza. This is the place and it's experimenting and it's being open. Uh, and, uh, you know, with... with the questions are also more essential of how to proceed. There are also questions that our um, writers and artists in Gaza are busy with. So, and, and it's fascinating, like, the, you cannot be pressed. And I remember actually reading in, um, in 2000, you know, at the start of the Second Intifada, because it was a sudden shift in the military method of occupation of the Israeli government. Suddenly it changed. It is a different type of, uh, of uh, uh, military control and degradation. And I was, 
I think I was saved by reading Primo Levi because the question is, it's not that he managed to, to defeat the dehumanization that he experienced because eventually he killed himself. But you see with his, you know, he keeps his humanity uh, and I'm not talking about this European universalism of a humanity, but it is something that you cannot defeat. Because what is uh, this kind of situations of occupation and colonization? They want to defeat you as a human being to prove they are right, because you are not a human being. And then it's like, no, you are, you are, and, 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 and you know it because you look for that. And I think the absurdity of literature and art, because in reality you cannot do anything, it's like the space of imagination that you are left with. Mm. And, and that's why it's really important. And you know, in Palestine, Israel, you see the political elites are so corrupt, so corrupt. It's like, it's like you know, so yucky. Uh, but on the other hand, there's so much interesting in terms of literature and art. Like, wow, it's like there's two different poles, two different forces are, are going. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what you say is, a, I mean, a, a beautiful testament to the importance and possibility that uh, art and literature uh, can can be for a reconstruction of identity and and, uh, and of dignity and, and exp self-expression. Uh, um, and you have also now um, moved on from twelve years of writing this novel to something. Uh, writing seven years writing another novel. Is it, is it a seven <laughs> years project now? <laughs> no, I hope not. But it's I, I, it has been three years. Um, I, okay. I finished one draft, but normally I, I like to work more. Mm. Hunting, the, hunting the deer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I love deer, you know. <laughs> but yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Adriana Shibli, for, for joining us here tonight. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you.